Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Good evening, guys. This is Dr. Huffpower, and I'm coming to you from my um, home studio here in Alvin, Texas. Uh, I am joined by someone who I think you're going to really enjoy talking to, and that, of course, is Ryan Francis. He's an MBA from Professional Transition Strategies. Uh, Ryan, how are you doing today, man? Doing great. It's a beautiful day out here in Colorado. Oh, man, I hope you're, I hope you're staying indoors. It's uh, From what I hear, my, my sister, her husband, and their two kids all got COVID. And they're, they're over in Parker. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. No oh, jeez. Telling me there's a lot of people with it over there. So I hope you're staying safe. Uh, yeah, family's staying safe and sane. So um, knock on wood, that keeps on being true. No kidding. So, um, Patrick, tell us a little bit about your history. I posted your bio um, a little while back on the group so that people kind of had an idea of who they were talking to. And, um, guys, I'm going to ask you to think of all your questions you want and hold them. Uh, that way we can get through some of the stuff that he's here to talk about. Uh, but we will let you ask questions throughout. If, if, they, if they are just burning questions, go ahead and pop them down in the, in the feed, and I'll, I'll try to get to them. So, Patrick, tell us a little bit about your history, um, how you came to work where you are, and what, what do you do for a living, man? Sure. So, um, yeah, just so, so it's, it's Kyle, by the way. So, um, the, uh, so I am, uh, I guess, so Kyle, uh, that's from a, a financial... That's the third time I've called you Patrick. <laughs> no, we talked about him beforehand, too. <laughs> uh, okay. Kyle. Yeah, it's all good, dude. Um, okay, so um, I uh, kind of, uh, so I was... I was a business major down at Baylor University. Um, I didn't uh, uh, I didn't know exactly how to get into the private equity and uh, venture capital world. Um, so my two choices were I can kind of either go the Goldman Sachs route or go um, kind of specialize in the industry. Um, I didn't have any background in dental at that point, but I took about 100 interviews coming out of school. And uh, my first job was with, uh, at that time, Sullivan Shine Dental. Um, so I was selling capital equipment. Okay. I've got a baby face, as you can see, and people weren't taking me very seriously. So um, I started to do, do trades. So I would um, do lease renegotiations, buy sell agreements, associate ship placements, essentially anything I could get my hands on. So that way people would um, buy equipment from me. Um, slowly but surely, by 2007, I ended up uh, having more calls for that than anything else. So I started up the company um, primarily as a consulting company to start out with. Um, so I started consulting for practices back and forth. And um, then I was able to do a lot more M&A work, right? So uh, I guess in the last 13 years, uh, we've either sold or affiliated 350 practices uh, with uh, either individuals, groups, DSOs, private equity. Um, uh, there's a lot of different options out there. Um, and then uh, I guess informing all of those different deals, we end up working a fair amount on the tax side of uh, what they need to be working on in order to kind of understand what their value is, and then also going to be on the back end of how to structure it right from a tax perspective. So I guess I ended up falling into um, being a, uh, a little bit of an expert in, in the SBA, and um, I've, uh, I've had to do a fair amount of work on that over the last couple of weeks. So I, I know you've been doing um, webinars and things like that like crazy. And um, by the way, folks, shout out to Shane Rinke um, of the TDA. Uh, he is who introduced me to not Patrick. That's your new name, not Patrick. 
but he introduced me to uh, Mr. Francis here and um, we, we got to talking and he's been doing, he's been doing webinars on, on these loans for, I, I guess what the last two weeks now. Yeah. Yep. So, um, well, tell us what some of the most common questions you're getting. Um, what, what are some of the things that people just don't understand? Yeah, well, um, so I think that probably the hardest thing to understand about the PPP was probably uh, the fact that it was was really tough from a PR perspective. Um, they kept on launching and then relaunching and then going back and trying over again. And so um, they kind of started the car four or five different times before they actually got it on the road. Um, the Once it kind of got locked down, and it really wasn't locked down until uh, Monday, um, the kind of the final guidance came out on Thursday, uh, Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, and people kind of got their brains around it over the weekend. So Monday is really whenever it, it started. Um, it's essentially the biggest questions I've gotten are going to be, you know, should I use it, <laughs> right? And um, the answer is pretty much a resounding yes. Now there's different strategies on how to use it, but um, the answer is yes, you definitely should um, because a vast majority of it, if not the entirety of it, uh, will end up being forgivable. Well, let, let's talk about the, um, the um, forgivable nature. So uh, I guess another question that I've been asked is going to be, uh, sh should I apply for it, right? So will I qualify? And then should you apply for it? And I guess the answer to that is going to be yes, too. Um, there has been a little bit of, um, I guess, consternation in terms of uh, when you should do that. Um, some people have uh, kind of uh, thrown out the idea that maybe we should wait, uh, uh, maybe we should wait to apply for it until much closer to things getting started back up. So it can fund the employees while they're actually working again. Um, uh, most of the banks that I've been talking to have talked about how there really isn't guidance on that yet, but they have been closing loopholes um, in ways to use the loan uh, for things other than just for the salaries of the people who are, um, who are working within a practice. So as a, for instance, um, the first loophole they closed was uh, primarily for owners um, or high paid associates that you can only um, count up to $100,000 of the PPP. Um, so that was one big one they came out with. Uh, the next one was that you had to use 75% of it um, on payroll. Um, so the other 25% could be used on other fixed expenses like rent, utilities, those kind of things. But everything that they're doing and closing the loopholes are going to be primarily uh, to keep it what the intent of the program was, and that's to keep people employed and not at the unemployment line. So uh, the interesting thing right now is trying to figure out, do you take it now? So uh, do you get those funds dispersed to you and have eight weeks to use them? Or do you uh, apply later and then have a certain amount of time? I'm sorry? And chance them running out of money. It's kind of a catch twenty two. Well, yeah. So there's there's two things, right? So there's one. You, they might run out of money. It's, they're an unbelievable amount of applications. Uh, most likely, I would say that if they do, um, uh, the government will most likely put more in. They put that in the CARES Act as well that they have the ability to refund. Um, so, the, but the bigger worry to me is going to be that if you wait for quite some time, let's say you, you wait until. Uh, May, right? And uh, June 1st is going to be your um, kind of fund date. Uh, what if you only have four weeks to use it, 
right? Then um, what happens is you only get that portion forgiven, the rest of it wraps into a loan. Now here's the thing is it's not an enormous disadvantage either because the background of the PPP loan is that anything that you aren't using for payroll. Um, so let's say you take out a $200,000 note uh, or $2,000 loan with PPP, $100,000 of it is forgiven. That 100,000 additional dollars uh, is just going to be on a, on a two-year note with 1% interest. So it's pretty much free money anyway, right? And it's also six months deferred. So um, there can be some strategy used on the back end. Um, it really kind of comes down to your, your risk uh, or your ability to kind of tolerate risk. So uh, one of the th- things that um, early on was was said by Congress actually, and by the lobbyists that I um, the lobbyists that I, I interviewed, is that the um, idle was going to be able to be rolled in, and there was going to be a ten thousand dollar grant, and now it's up to a ten thousand dollar grant, and now there's all the language about it being rolled in has disappeared. I can't find it anymore. <clears throat> So what do you know about that? And what, 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 what do you think is going on there? Yeah. Um, so uh, I would say that's, so out of everything, the way that the PPP and the EIDL interact together is, is probably the most difficult thing to understand in total. Um, just because the EIDL was rolled out first. And so you're correct. Uh, there was a $10,000 grant um, on the front of the EIDL. Essentially what you do is you apply for the EIDL through the SBA program. So you're not going to apply that uh, apply to that through a bank. Um, you're going to apply to it directly with SBA. From there, you can get uh, a ten thousand dollar grant. Um, technically, it could be up to ten thousand, but primarily, it's almost every single one would be a ten thousand dollar grant right up front. Now, the interesting thing is that if you apply for both um, the PPP and the EIDL, that ten thousand dollars comes off of the total amount that you can apply for on the PPP. So. Double dip. So a lot, a lot of people think that for some reason, because you can't double dip, that you can't do both. But you can do both. You can. Just, yep, you can do both. But they have closed loopholes, right? So that double dipping is not going to be available. So you can't take the ten thousand dollars, then also have the additional ten thousand dollars on the PPP. They're essentially subtracting it from the amount that you can get on that PPP loan. Okay. Um, so now, a lot of people have told me, um, like hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, by the way, the group uh, you're being interviewed in front of is 21,000 Dentists. So say hi. Hi there. So um, a lot of them have told me that they applied for the EIDL and have not received their funds at all. And that, that entire thing was a clusterfuck. Um, you know, they, they changed the rules. They changed the website. First it was paper. Then the paper went away. Then it was a PDF. You had to fill it out. You had to upload it. Then you got a tracking number. And then days later they came back and they said, hey, your tracking number is no good. Go back and recertify. So are we, are we finally done with that? Or is it finally settled the way that it's going to be handled? Um, I, I hope <laughs> I so. feeling that they've solidified this? Problem? I do. So I mean, like um, the SBA has sent all of their, their regional vice presidents out and have been doing webinars with them as well. And um, the ones that I've been on with them, uh, everybody's saying the same thing now. And so that's a good thing. Uh, I do think it's pretty much settled. Um, uh, I've done the process with a few people at this point. They were just kind of having a hard time. So I was, was helping them through it. And um, it, yeah, I would say that the EIDL program, the, the initial application was, is going to take you maybe a grand total of 10 to 15 minutes to do. It's not very long. The PPP, depending on which bank you're using, because the PPP is, uh, you have to go directly through your bank and SBA lender. 
on that. Um, so everybody has a little bit of a different process. And actually that's something that it would be worthwhile for your group to, to be tracking as well is going to be, I've got about 40 different banks um, of different clients that I've had in the past that I'm asking them, okay, what was the process, right? Um, how easy was it on the front end? Do they keep up, keep on coming back for additional information? How fast was, were funds distributed? Um, uh, how tight were they on their guidelines, et cetera? Um, that'll be a worthwhile thing for y'all to be thinking about as well. Absolutely. And, and if you'd like, uh, if, if you would like us to ask any poll questions, yeah, I can get those done and then I can get that information back to you. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll put one together. All right. Fantastic. Um, yeah. so one of the things that, um, was, was a bit confusing here is that the EIDL initially, um, was going to be a, um, I'm sorry. The EIDL initially was going to be a, um, a loan that was out over, um, goodness. I believe the original was 10 million up to, uh, up to, up to 30 years or something like that. And then yeah. they changed it and they said, okay, well, it's going to be 3.75% interest unless mm -hmm. you roll it into the SBA, in which case it becomes 4% interest. And now the SBA is 1% interest, but it was supposed to be 0.5% interest. Right. Yeah. Break the facts down for us. What's really going yeah. on now? Uh, so, yeah. So let's start the PPP first. Um, the PPP, it was supposed to be a 0.5% interest rate. And then uh, some of the banks that are SBA lenders, it wouldn't work within their guidelines. Uh, they were going to be losing a fair amount of money on it by, do, by servicing the loans. So essentially it had to go back for the 1%. So the P, anything that's taken out under PPP is going to be a two-year term, six-month deferment, 1% loan, right? That's, uh, that, that's exact. Um, okay. However, that's subtracted by the total amount of forgiveness, right? So if you're using it on payroll, you're using it on utilities, or you're using it on rent, then it gets waived. Um, in terms of the EIDL, EIDL is, uh, you're right, they, they changed it like three different times. Oh, by the way, PPP can be up to $10 million. Um, no dental practice or very, very few dental practices are going to be able to get that full $10 million out of it. Um, you just kind of take that total payroll, you know, multiply that monthly payroll by 2.5, and that's what you get your total from. It's a 12-month um, rolling average, right? 12-month rolling average. And actually, so for seasonal businesses, you can do it differently, but dentistry is not primarily seasonal. Um, my dentist that, man. I <laughs> well, so I think that's primarily for like, you know, tourist groups, you know, so like uh, that kind of thing. But um, I, I understand that some like some oral surgery groups are going to be crazy busy in the summer, etc. Um, but even the seasonality side, they say that you have to kind of take a 12 month from that point. So it's not going to help all that much. Um, so the EIDL, um, yeah, they did change it a fair amount. So now it's going to be a $2 million cap. It's going to work really similar to another like SBA 7A loan. So just without all of the different guidelines to it. Um, so the first thing is that uh, the first $25,000 that you take out is going to be with, um, with no uh, collateral, no collateral at all. And so uh, it's essentially kind of a, uh, a free loan in that way. And you have to pay it back if you want your credit score to get dinged, but there's no collateral on it. Um, up to $200,000, uh, you can do it without a personal guarantee, um, which is also pretty nice as well. So they're not going to wrap up your house, et cetera, for it. Um, and uh, then beyond that, they will start taking personal guarantees, start taking collateral. It is a 3.75% interest rate, and you can get out to a 30-year term. Now, again, there's no guidance on that yet, 
So they may okay. say, hey, our deal here is a 10 year, our deal here is a 12 year, you know, is it gonna be a 15 year? We're gonna have to fight, we're gonna have to wait and see, but still 3.75% is a pretty good term on a 10 year note. Um, the only way that it ends up going to a 4% is if you have an existing 7A loan and you wrap that EIDL into it, then essentially they will say that entire loan is now a 4% loan. And the reason right. that that's kind of interesting is that let's say that you had you know, a 5% term on it, you might actually be lowering your overall cost average on the deal. And that can actually be, be pretty attractive. Um, so, uh, and the 3.75 was going to be kind of the bottom of the market in terms of SBA. So, so the, again, the banks didn't lose as much money. They cost average up right. to a 4%. Well, I, um, I imagine those, those nice little um, negative interest rates are hitting them. Yeah, that might help. <laughs> <laughs> that might help. Uh, one but last thing on the ADL <laughs> is that it is a 12 month deferred deal as well. So again, it right. can, the reason I think it's worthwhile to apply for both is even if everybody's already on unemployment in, in the practice, the PPP loan doesn't cost anything to sit there for six months, right? Um, same thing with the EIDL. If you get money in from the EIDL, then it's just going to sit there. You can have it sit there for 12 months and just determine how you want to um, uh, kind of strategically use it. So right. um, to my eye, it still makes a ton of sense. And there's no prepayment penalties on any of them as well. So if it sits there, you don't use it and you don't want the note, you just pay it off. I don't, I don't know. Two weeks ago, a prepayment penalty appeared and then disappeared. I know was, it did. I know. That, that <laughs> That's <was> true. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's true. Right now there is none. And um, I mean, I think with the applications already have gone in, uh, I don't believe there can be one at this point, but I mean, shoot, who knows? Unprecedented times. So, so um, are we, what, what I'm hearing is that no one's actually gotten their EIDL money at all. Hey guys, if you've gotten your EIDL, go ahead and pop up in the uh, comments and say, I've gotten it. Um, the other thing I'm hearing is that Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Chase, uh, to name three of the big ones, are not going to be doing these SBA loans. They've actually flat out refused most of the people who've applied to them. Uh, do you have any input on that? I know that this was mainly done for small hometown banks, or at least right. that's what they said when it first came out of, uh, out of Congress. What, what is your feedback on that? Yeah, so um, maybe to backtrack just for a second, the uh, PPP program, you saw the Wells um, ended up capping it at 10 billion. So they had to, the reason they had to is because of the deal where they were, you know, creating all the fake accounts and all those kind of things over the, over the last years, they were only able to do a certain amount of business um, with the SBA. Let's uh, uh, not so, even get into that. I know. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> um, the, uh, the uh, big banks, they're just really not as optimized for the SBA loan in, in total, right? So most of the time, uh, we're very familiar in the dental world with them because they have dental lending divisions, right? So if you look at like Bank of America, they have really, really great conventional loans um, and uh, they're going to be able to kind of handle it without using the SBA. Um, okay. And so, yes, they are going to use SBA whenever it comes to real estate, but not primarily going to be for business acquisitions. So it's just kind of outside of their uh, outside of their scope uh, for the most part, um, and so I think that's kind of the reason why they're not going to be participating as much. And also, if you look at how much action they've gotten on the PPP program, I think in the very first day, so Bank of America was the first to open up. They had eighty five thousand applications come in and twenty two billion. Um, I mean, there's already been hundreds. Uh, I'm sorry, over a hundred billion in over in overall applications at this point. So 
um, just on the PPP. So I think they're going to stay busy with that. Um, and the EIDL is just probably better served with small banks. Now, you don't have to go through your bank for that, right? You're going to be going directly to the SBA program and they're going to use a matching system on that. So even if the big banks are saying they're not doing it, we don't know 100% for sure. They may end up doing some of this as well. Um, but because it's all administered by the SBA, um, it doesn't really matter which bank it is. The, gotcha. the, yeah, the SBA is the one setting the terms. So um, one of the things that I'm hearing is um, Live Oak Bank has been very easy to work with. Uh, I don't have any financial interest in them, folks. So if you are needing a bank, uh, I also know that the Texas Advantage Community Bank here in Alvin is actually doing these loans. I do have a financial in interest in that bank. I own part of it. So if you decide to go through them, thank you. Do you have any other uh, any other banks that you know of that are doing a good job with this? And please disclose any financial interest that you have in any of them. Yeah, no financial interest in any banks. Um, okay. I would say uh, the ones that I've heard the for the for the most part, um, I, uh, First Bank out of Colorado has done a really good job. Um, again, I'm in Colorado, so that's um, uh, that's a good thing. I actually have heard the same about Live Oak Bank. I'm actually looking at my uh, notes right now to see what all people have can said. Can you get a loan from a bank out of your state? Yep. It shouldn't be an issue, right? I mean, it's the no. SBA. Okay, yeah, great. No problem. Yeah. Um, so I would say that, I mean, the best way of doing it for the PPP program, if you have a relationship with the bank already, just go with that bank. Now, if you can't, like Wells Fargo is creating a, a big problem because right. they have, what, 20% of the overall checking accounts and they've already closed it. So um, I actually think the easiest way of doing it is you actually can go through the SBA and they'll use a matching program there too, right? So um, they're going to send it out to the different folks or the different banks that aren't getting quite as much action as well. Um, I have heard Live Oak has done a, has, has done a good job. Um, trying to see. Uh, in the EIDL, I've heard Lindever does a really good job as well. Um, yeah, those are, those are the only ones that, that I really know. Some of the big banks are kind of a little bit cumbersome. Uh, I've actually heard, so I've got four, four different folks saying Bank of America is, is pretty great to, to be doing the PPP through anyway, so. All right, fantastic. Yeah. That's absurd and interesting to know because <laughs> I've never- Don't get me wrong. It's not, with Bank of America. They, they, do not, they do not make my list in terms <laughs> of uh, different people I refer out. I've had- Right. Uh, what we've done 350 transactions and I try to do as few as possible with them and Wells Fargo, but Hey, data is data. So. All right. First bank of New Mexico is also doing a great job uh, according to PT Barnum in case you need to send anyone there. Okay, guys. Um, if you have questions, you can now go ahead and ask them. Um, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and cover anything we've missed? Uh, and, and then you and I can get into a discussion about, um, what people need to know about cost of goods sold and uh, EBITDA and all that kind of happy stuff. Sure. Um, so uh, just to just to make sure we hit on it, I right now again there is the a little bit unusual part of PPP that talks about how it needs to be used by June thirtieth. We don't know exactly how that's going to work. It could be extended, etc. Um, if your risk quotient is there and you're not worried about it rolling over into a loan. That could be a worthwhile way to spend it. Um, I think uh, if we look at the 
the other things in the CARE Act, so kind of away from the EIDL and then the PPP, um, the Small Business Debt Relief Program is actually pretty great. Um, so if you do already have an SBA loan, uh, you can actually get six months that is forgiven. That's not a deferred payment. That's actually just forgiven. That's paid. Um, so that's, that's pretty good uh, as well. So if you do have an, an existing loan, that's definitely something to look up. Um, I think uh, there's one part, uh, this is kind of a, an ancillary benefit, but it could end up popping up here and there. Um, the Section 170 or 139 disaster relief portion of the CARES Act is pretty interesting too. Um, that allows for child care reimbursement um, that is tax deductible for the, uh, for the owner of the practice and then tax free for the employee of the practice to accept. So there's a way of kind of working out a compensation package that might end up working out pretty well as people may not be able to go to daycare, those kind of things. Um, and then the final thing is gonna be for, for any of your workers that may be unemployed at this part, at, the, at this point, the extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits is not nothing, right? <clears throat> Um, how, now, how do they get that, by the way? All of my employees are asking, and I can't tell them exactly anything, because I've actually called the uh, Texas uh, work, uh, Workers, or whatever, whatever the hell it's called, TWC, yeah. um, and they have no idea. Yeah, um, it's actually going to be automatic. So um, it's going to be fun. As soon as they start funding it, they have not started funding it yet, just like oh, everything else. Oh, that's why. Yeah, but as soon as, uh, as, soon as it starts, then it's just going to be automatic going in with the rest of their unemployment. Um, so that's, again, that's not nothing. That's what an additional $2,400 per month. And that's why some people are saying that that's additional to the other. So, uh, I mean, there could be assistants out there, front office people out there that end up making more <laughs> on, on the unemployment side. It could be hard to get it, them back in, in the door a little bit to start out with. Right. Um, but for, for the most part, I think it should kind of be pretty darn close to even. Um, in terms of the uh, stipends that are being paid. I think that, have you guys talked much about that at all? No, as well? no, we haven't. I do want to bring one question. The okay. eight week period, does it start when you fund the loan? No one seems to know. Yeah, it does start when you fund the loan. Um, now, let's say you apply for the loan. Uh, different banks have different regulations at this point, as far as how long you can defer the, the loan funding date. So um, as a, for instance, uh, uh, my company, we went ahead and applied this last uh, this this last weekend, and so um, they'll get back with me, and I'll be able to pick a funding date. Uh, mine, my bank is saying outside of five days um, uh, from the time of kind of being approved for it. Uh, that's kind of what the loan funding date is going to be. I've heard that it can be much longer than that as well. Again, there's not guidance in the SBA at this point to to know that for sure. And the issue becomes if you wait too long and you wait too long to have that funded, will you be able to use it by that amount of time? So again, there's lots of different strategies there that's worthwhile to talk with um, uh, your, your payroll company about, right? Um, and there are some unique things that I've heard that people are trying to do. Um, I don't know how well they're going to work. I think they're going to try to close as many loopholes as possible. Excellent. So I, I'm curious, do you guys, um, we're going to go and we're going to cover the stipends now. I was curious, do you guys actually have Kevin back there working on these? <laughs> yeah, so we got Stanley, right? He's, you can see him. Uh, so yeah, Dwight's in the other room. Um, yeah, he's just making a mess. You know, Jim's pranking him. So 
You know, so, you know what, Kevin is the underwriter. That's what I've heard. <laughs> so, so talk to me a little bit here uh, about the stipends. It's something I haven't heard about. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sure most, most people heard it's $1,200 per person, right? Um, that $1,200 per person uh, is, uh, it can be $2,400 per couple as well. And then it's also $500 per child. And so, I mean, again, family of six, uh, you're, you're suddenly looking at, you know, upwards of $5,600. That's, that's not nothing, right? Or I'm sorry, uh, $4,400. It's not nothing. Um, the, the issue becomes that uh, you are, uh, you start to cap out on what you can get. So anybody who makes over $75,000 up to $99,000 as a person, um, it starts to kind of phase out. So you're not going to get as much benefit. So for most owners, it's probably not going to make a whole heck of a lot of difference. You probably won't get very much, if anything. Um, you can get not up to $198,000 as a couple. So again, for most owners, most likely it's not going to be very helpful for them, but it is going to be very helpful for all of their employees. Um, it is worthwhile to bring up to their employees that, hey, this is going to be coming. Um, they've already opened the portals in order for them to get that direct deposited into their accounts and not send out a paper check too. So um, anyway, again, for employees, it's great. For owners, most of the time, it's not going to apply. Okay. So um, if you'll look in your chat, as these questions are coming in, I'm actually sticking them in there so that you can cover them as it's natural. Okay. Yep. So essentially what it says, okay. Yeah. So I've, I've heard this as well. Uh, so here's the thing. I, I can't tell you the amount of CPA groups that I've talked to at this point, the amount of banks that I've talked to at this point. I think I've been on, you know, at this point, probably 50 different webinars. Um, and everybody has a different answer. And everybody says, okay, if you pull from this page of the um, SBA guidance, this is the amount of time that they're giving. Yeah, but if somebody else pulls from a different page, there's a different amount of guidance that's given. So I'm not saying Kane Waters is wrong at all. Um, I would never say that. But um, I would say that there's still a lot of um, issues that I'm seeing out there in terms of how long uh, the deferral could be. Uh, I've, I heard one guy literally just kind of beat me over the head with, it is a month. It says so right here. Uh, this was just like two hours ago. So, um, and again, he's uh, very well respected too. So um, say I apply for the loan and funded in three weeks. Um, could the X-Corp wait to reopen? Um, it's So here's the thing. That's pop, possible. <laughs> so Dr. Yes, Dr. Franklin, this is your question. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So, um, is it possible that you could, uh, wait to reopen for another four weeks? Uh, there's a, there, there have been a, a couple of consultants that have kind of uh, posited this right now, again, because we don't have the type of guidance in the SBA package of when you have to use it by, that's going to be the overall issue. So right now, what it says is that you have until June 30th to use the funds, right? Because really what the intent is, is that everybody's going to be applying right now. Everybody's funded by the 1st of May. They have eight weeks to use the funds, right? It doesn't necessarily say what happens if I'm funded May uh, 20th I, uh, and then I only have five weeks to use the funds. Do I actually have the eight weeks or do I only have five weeks to use the funds? That's what's not known. So it's possible that you might have some roll over into that 1% loan if you don't use it by that point. Again, we don't know yet. It's not 100% there. It's a good question. Okay. 
And uh, someone is asking you to repeat the thing you said about employees getting money. It's not a great question, but <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll humor him. Now, this, this is one of my friends. They're just screwing with him. Yeah, no, it's good. Okay, so uh, employee, employees getting money. Uh, so $1,200 per person is, is what each person can get, uh, $2,400 per couple, and an additional $500 per child. Now, that amount is true up to $75,000 for individual earners or $150,000 in um, uh, couple ownership or family uh, funds that's coming in. Uh, it starts to kind of tail back as until you get to $99,000 for an individual or $198,000 for a family. Um, so you're going to get kind of decreasing benefits as, as that kind of slides that scale over. Once you hit $99,000 as an individual, $198,000 as a family, then there is no benefit remaining. So it's a sliding scale in between that. Excellent. And how do they apply for that? Uh, there is no application that is necessary. That is just going directly through um, tax returns, I believe is the way they're mining that data. That's going to every single individual in the US. Okay, fantastic. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, something that came up on the, on the group a few days ago. And um, I was really amazed and shocked to find out how many people didn't know about it. But then again, my background was in construction and real and realty. Not realty, I'd rather uh, <laughs> no, not realty, retail. Uh, and so I knew about cost of goods sold because it was just it was a thing that we had to calculate all the time. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about cost of goods sold. Yeah. So um, in a, in a dental office, or I mean, let's uh, think about. Uh, uh, we can think about it as any business, but if we think about just from a dental office point of view, essentially what we need to calculate there is going to be the variable costs that are going to be going into the production of whatever dentistry is being done, right? Right. So what that does not account for is that does not account for um, personnel per se, um, but it does account for um, lab supplies and um, uh, essentially any other material costs that you're going to need. You can also do a, um, uh, a weighted amount of fixed costs in that uh, cost of goods sold calculation, because if you're going to be using a certain amount of equipment in order to do it, you can put that into cost of goods sold. Very, very, very few small businesses end up doing that. Um, that's probably more theoretical than anything else, but it's essentially, it's your, primarily it's going to be your variable costs like lab and like supplies. So that's what you want to know is your cost of goods sold. So um, it was brought up that it was, in fact, illegal. I didn't argue the point because I knew I was going to have an MBA on that you could tell them whether it was or not. Uh, it's illegal for a service company to claim cost of goods sold. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. And if I'm wrong, publicly, I will say so right now. Uh, That's the same look I had. That is That is nothing that <laughs> I've ever heard. Okay, so as a for instance, I mean... Okay. Um, I don't even know if I should say this. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, uh, I'm a service company, right? I have okay. cost of goods sold. Right. And so I have a lot fewer, uh, variable costs than what a dentist would have, um, because I don't have any of the lab or the dental supplies. Um, 
uh, my accountant puts that in there, I don't come up with my PL, right? So right. I would be I would be shocked if that's the case. I'm a service company. Um, but uh, I've never heard of that. Oxygen sure MBA. So, you know, probably know <laughs> I've never heard of that. Uh, again, I'll, I'll be the first one to say I'm wrong if I'm wrong, but that is not something I've ever heard. Okay. Uh, so just to, just to recap on that, let's say I'm doing a filling. I have to turn the room. There's an average cost of between nine and $15, depending upon labor costs, depending on where yep. you are in the country to turn the room around. Um, whenever I'm doing the filling, I'm going to use a certain amount of, um, of composite. I should take the total amount of cartridges of composite I use over a week, divide by the total number of fillings that are done. That's going to give me the amount of each one of those carpules that are, that, that are capsules I'm using. And then that's going to be my cost of my composite. If it's a crown, it's going to be the cost of the lab fee, uh, the cost of turning the room around. Does it or does it not include the fractional time of the employee working during that period? Or is that separate? So I think that, so uh, everything that I've understood is that's going to be separate. Um, okay. So if you look at it from a manufacturing point of view, I kind of go back that direction. Um, you're not going to be taking the hourly cost of the person running the machine in order to do that. That's going to be an operating cost. That's not going to be a cost of goods sold. Okay. Uh, PT, uh, there's no way that, well, on your return, yeah. Uh, uh, PT says that um, his his cost of goods sold last year on his return was zero. And uh, my, my point is not that you have to take it, but that oh. it does exist and it is not illegal. And it's smart if you do take it. Frankly, well, I guess what I would say is that your prices should be. Well, I, was, I would love to know from, from maybe from your perspective, um, kind of coming from the retail side is going to be um, whether it's going to be called an operating cost or whether it's going to be called a cost of goods sold, regardless, it's still a deductible cost, right? Right. And so um, from that uh, EIDL application, is that kind of where it came from? Is the EIDL application? I believe it is. I, okay. I, I think yeah. it was 214C or 413C right. or whatever. Yeah. So, so many forms that we don't have to fill out anymore. I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so if, if you're looking at there, there actually is not going to be a huge benefit of putting a significantly higher or lower cost of goods sold there um, because whenever they start asking you additional questions, that's really whenever they're going to do the underwriting. They just want to have a flavor of the business. Um, gotcha. If you are going to be a service-related business, they're going to understand that most of it is going to be, you know, personnel and fixed costs that can't be allocated. So um, it, it really won't affect the total amount that you're going to be getting. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and Sonia, I, I know that that's what they're saying. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, it's just not true. Uh, cost of goods sold is cost of goods sold. Uh, so it, 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 the, the whole point though, is it doesn't matter because it's not going to affect anything. Yeah. Um, so uh, can, I, can, I, can I jump in? They're still arguing with me about cost of goods sold. Well, okay. If I, if I can jump in and just maybe <laughs> say that uh, whenever they're going to underwrite that loan, they're going to underwrite that loan very, very, very similarly to the way they're going to underwrite an SBA 7A loan, right? So um, if you are a business that does $2 million in revenue and call it um, $400,000 in EBITDA on the back end, the chances that you're going to be able to get $2 million on the loan is going to be very, very, very small, right? It's just uh, no SBA 7A loan would, would allow for that. But the way that you get to EBITDA is going to be adding together your cost of goods sold and your operating costs. So it's essentially all of your costs together. So whether you call it one or whether you call it the other, uh, again, it's still going to be kind of looked at the same right. way by the SBA. And, and either way, folks, it's something, whether you put it on your tax return or not, as a business owner, you need to know the cost of goods sold. You need to figure that out 
because that is the way you set your prices. So I'm just, just telling you right now. <laughs> so whether or not your, your account lets you put it, do hookers have a cost of goods sold? I'm relatively certain they do. It depends if they're running by the hour or what. So anyway, um, let's get back into, uh, <laughs> I'm getting interesting messages now. Um, so let's get back into EBITDA. Let's talk about how the value of your practice is calculated. Yeah. So um, yeah, the way that I normally explain EBITDA or EBITDA or EBITDA, whatever you want to say it, is going to be um, that it looks at your practice much more like an investment more than anything else, right? So the old way of doing dental loans or dental transitions, all those kind of things, one person buys from another person, um, they're going to be looking at something called seller's discretionary earnings. Is it okay if I go over that first to kind of say yeah, the please. difference? Okay. So they're going to look at uh, seller's discretionary earnings. Seller's discretionary earnings is essentially looking at any way that you can be taking money out of the business. So way one Including is the backs. Yeah, there you go. Including uh -huh. addbacks. That toilet paper you've been stealing from the office people. <laughs> so um, we've got... We've got the total W-2 income. Uh, we've got the net income distributions. We also have whatever ad backs are there, right? So that could be depreciation, amortization, uh, travel. I've seen oil fields run through it. I'm not seeing the gamut, right? Um, so essentially you add all those things together and you put a multiplier on it. That multiplier is typically going to be like 1.7 or 1.9. And that's the way that the banks have looked at it forever and ever and ever. Right. So they want to know how much total cash flow can that person handle the cash flow with this new loan. Right. Um, reason EBITDA is being used more is because now more investment institutions are coming in uh, or investable institutions, private equity groups. And so private equity groups has essentially used this formula to say, OK, look, we do want to know what the overall operating costs and cost of goods sold are going to be of the of the practice. But we also want. Yeah, no, no, I won't I, confuse I, 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 them. I'll say it again. <laughs> um, the, uh, but they also want to know how much a doctor, a reasonable doctor can be paid there, right? So uh, it, the interesting part about uh, EBITDA is going to be, yeah, it, is, it stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Whenever you adjust it, you're still taking those adjustments out, right? So you're still taking the pension that uh, you're paying uh, your wife or your husband through in the practice. You're taking out um, the amount that you're paying the kiddos to do the marketing for you, all those different types of things. Um, real quick, real quick tax tip. You didn't hear this. Hey guys, if you're going to do any ads, your children should be hired as child actors. I believe you can pay them like five or $6,000 a year and you don't get taxed on that shit. Just, yep. just saying, you know, works like hey, a charm. Go ahead. Yeah, works like a charm. Um, uh, can I can I tell you my favorite one that I've heard? They're yeah, kind of yeah. little tax tips like that. Not, not the Augusta rule. That was uh, well. The Augusta rules. It's interesting. You know, I've I've seen it used quite a bit too. But I my favorite one is going to be uh, people who have bought gold for years and years and years through their supply budget. <laughs> it's it is unbelievable. I've, I sold an office out in West Texas that this guy had multiple five gallon drums of little gold ingots. He's like, no, That's these don't awesome, go with the practice. I'm like, yeah, okay, well. Um, so uh, anyway, I was, uh, so EBITDA, uh, well, essentially quick, what they were- I'm sorry, Kyle, one second. This is actually a pretty good question. Um, well, one says my kids are ugly and hey, <laughs> maybe that's a before picture. And another one says, what about my dogs? And I, I think you actually can do that, can't you? But you'd uh, have maybe, to make a management that, company that is, for the dog? That, that's going to that's gonna be beyond me. My, my, my CPA I, I, is only told me about the kiddos. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that one. <laughs> 
If you All don't right. come and get your work done, we will send you pictures of my children. <laughs> that might work. If that doesn't uh, get them, it will. <laughs> uh, Nika, uh, the, we, we talked about a couple of tax tips. We talked about the Augusta rule. Um, yep. You can use your home for 14 days at a, the equivalent of a nice resort that you would have in your area that you would right. have a so, business. And not just at. that, but also if it's, it also can be catered too. Yes. And, yep. uh, and that is a tax credit, if I'm not mistaken. That's above uh, the line. It's a deduction. Uh, oh, it's a deduction. Oh, rats. Well, you know, I just do it. My CPA takes care of it. But, uh, <laughs> and you can pay your children, I believe, five or $6,000 a year. It's tax-free. Yep. Um, yes, alley dogs and hookers have costs of goods sold, I, I think. I don't, I don't know about dogs. You know, Hotel rooms, dog, I guess. Food I goes in, the poop comes out. Are you taxed on both ends? Who knows? So, so that was an accountant job, people. Oh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> so getting back to uh, getting back to EBITDA, I believe before we got completely derailed. Um, yeah. What what is what is your recommendation for keeping the value in the practice? So, folks, for what for you those of you who don't know, um, oh, you're you're quite welcome, Dr. Franklin. Um, for those of you who don't know, this guy he helps people transition out of their practices, so he does this stuff all the time. He's actually kind of good at it. So um, if you are looking to transition out, I'll put his contact information. I have no financial interest in his company at all. Um, he just agreed to come on here and give you guys some good information. So anyway, um, so back to EBITDA. What are, your, what are your suggestions for keeping value in the practice in these times? Um, what effect is um, taking out all these loans going to have on your practice value? I know that's something a lot of people are worried about. Um, so, Go ahead and go ahead and hit us with that. And I, I know questions are going to keep coming and I'll keep telling sure. you what they are over here. Sure. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think whenever we talked a couple of days back, you'd asked me that question and I had not heard it yet. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the floodgates opened over the last four days. So I'm getting it a bunch. I, I have now. my ear to a very good group of dentists. Right <laughs> well, so um, overall, EBITDA should be a net neutral event whenever it comes to taking out all of these loans. Now, that doesn't mean that the cash out will be the same. I'll kind of explain what the difference is. Okay, so um, whenever you think about taking out a potential loan, whether it's EIDL at 3.75%, um, uh, you will not be uh, given credit for any of that income coming in, right? So that's not truly income, that's below the revenue line item. So it's almost kind of like an insurance settlement. Um, and you're also not going to be uh, kind of helped out by the amount of expenses there either. Uh, the reason being is that all of the expenses are just gonna be paid for by non-revenue money. So um, the chances of it actually affecting EBITDA is going to be really, really, really low if the valuation person knows what they're doing. Um, and uh, I mean, most of the private equity groups, most of the uh, good brokers, good MA advisors out there will be able to do that calculation pretty darn easily. Um, now, what you can do in the interim in order to protect EBITDA is probably more theoretical than anything else, but um, I think it's being strategic. Yeah, there's never been anything like this before. Right. For folks. If you feel yeah. confused, imagine the poor MBAs and CPAs that are, that are having to deal with this on their end. Nothing like this has happened. We're literally, we're having a plague. It's, it's, it's truly, it's biblical. We're having earthquakes. There's what two or three states that have been racked with uh, fives and sixes over the past couple of months, and no one hears about them because everybody's worried about where they're going to get their masks. Then we've got this pandemic plague. Then we've got honestly, we were in a bubble 
to begin with, and we were set for a recession. And I think this just snowplowed it under. I see you disagree there, but that's okay. I, I predicted this thing. I saw oh. my practice before it happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I think the people who sold their practice in the last probably five months are probably all very similar to you um, in the fact that um, it does provide a fair amount of, uh, of help, you know, on the back end. Um, that it's not just, it's not just on you at this point, you know, um, the recession part, um, that's probably another podcast. So, um, the, uh, in, in, <laughs> Oh, I, I'm so tempted to go down the rabbit hole of <laughs> negative interest rates and the fractional reserve with you, because uh, I no. bet no one here knows what I'm talking about, but I bet you do. Uh, I've, I've been down that rabbit hole. Yep. So, um, the uh, in terms of in terms of protecting EBITDA, what my my guess is going to be it's the you know the whole um, you know our grandpa's idea of zigging whenever other people zag, right? And so it is. Um, I thought you were going to say keep your cash to the mattress, or that too. I mean that works, right? Um, uh, that's not going to help with your EBITDA all that much. Actually, that reminds me. Uh, there was a there's another practice that I sold. This one happened to be in uh, in, in a larger city. And this guy, every single time he got cash, he just stuffed it in socks. And um, he said, well, can't I count this as revenue? You know, I'm like, how on earth can I count this as revenue? You know, all that kind of stuff. And he got it tax-free for I don't know how many years. And he literally showed me 15 socks he had of rolled up bills. So were the socks clean or dirty? Because I'm wondering if this was a, a, a tactic to keep people from stealing them. <laughs> they're two. They're they're those no. tube. They were the tube socks that were like uh, light blue and dark blue stripes at the top. You know, um, I don't know whether they were. They looked used. I don't know. So um, the uh, just how okay, recently so, were they used? That's the question. Right. I don't I, honestly. I'd rather not know. Um, <laughs> the uh, the um, I, I really don't think it should be a, an effect on the EBITDA. That's that's what my overall gut is going to be. There is a chance that as we come out of this, that your expenses will be higher, right? Um, and so there's essentially kind of two different valuation methodologies to account for that. And that's essentially the same way that people have been doing with hurricanes and natural disasters for years. One of, it, one of them is called baking it in and one of them is called baking it out. Do you want me to okay. explain? Yeah, please, please. Okay. please do. So a baking it in essentially kind of accounts for the total amount of the downturn. So let's say that you are working off of your last 12 months um, these last, uh, these months right now. So, uh, March, April, and potentially May may not be nearly as good. Uh, they may still say, okay, hey, we're going to look at your last 12 months. We're going to bake that into the total valuation that we'll give you. And then on the back end, we'll give you a whole bunch of earnups, right? Um, and the earnups are like, okay, as you recover, as you get better than recovery, this is how that valuation could work. Uh, banks actually can do this as well. So this is not just a private equity trick. Um, the, uh, the other way of doing it is baking it out, essentially kind of looking at it as, hey, this never happened. Everybody's in the exact same boat, right? So that was kind of made more uh, famous for, from Katrina um, and all the practices down in New Orleans. They essentially kind of looked at what was the practice up until that point, and we're going to value it off of that. And um, we're just going to wait until everything recovers. Everybody's in the same boat, right? So that's kind of the way they look at it. Either way is acceptable, um, but I think baking it out ends up kind of winning out overall as the market kind of uh, gets back to normal. Right. Um, well, <laughs> it kind of begs the question of what the normalizing forces are as we as we exit this thing. But um, mm, very true. Whether they're going to be there at all. <laughs> I know. Yeah, well. So. Um, 
No, I don't believe, uh, Mr. Barnum, that it is necessary to get baked to understand the concept. But thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> that might help. I don't know. <laughs> All right, guys. Do you have any more questions for uh, for not Patrick? All right. So, Kyle Francis, uh, thank you for joining us. And um, I'd actually like to have you on the podcast to uh, to discuss uh, any any financial matters that uh, that do arise in the business of dentistry. Um, we get a, a lot of anonymous letters and. Um, a lot of them have to do with um, buying practices. Um, unfortunately, most of them don't include the information that you really need to dig down deep and you know and and, and tear things apart and see what the practices were. So if you, oh, we've got a bunch of checklists have, out there for buyers. So um, I mean, that's if you, uh, if you have something like that, um, could you could you possibly? Um, send it to me and I can post it as a guideline and tell people, Hey, if you have a question about buying a practice, feel free to ask it as a dear doc question, but please include the following information. The problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to send it off to you. Fantastic. Okay. So any closing thoughts? Tell us something good. Uh, Sonia, something good about what? (laughs) Okay. Well, okay. So if I, if I've got two, is is two fair for closing thoughts? Yeah, please. Okay. You you can have as many closing thoughts as you want. I'm just sitting here and, Killing so time. Think, well, I've been with those kids for three weeks. <laughs> three weeks. This is my only alone time. That's why you've got to go to the office and hang out with Stanley, you know? So, um, okay. The, uh, uh, I think that the first thing is going to be, uh, I do think that being strategic and thought right now is going to be super important. Um, there was a, kind of a, a self-help type of expert that I was on a podcast early, uh, early last week uh, that was talking about. Only 3% of the people are actually kind of planning for how to come out of this well. Those 3% are going to be way ahead of the the rest of the group that are spending more of their time, you know, watching Netflix, right? Um, Don't get me wrong, Tiger King was awesome. But um, anyway, the... uh, uh, I also think that um, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to maybe handle things that you weren't handling beforehand, right? So whether that is kind of making sure that uh, all of your people are in the right place doing the right things, you know, so this is kind of my consulting background come, coming back. Right. Um, you have time to do it, right? Um, whether it is analyzing your P&Ls to kind of figure out, oh my gosh, my cost of goods sold are way too high. Or um, if it is that uh, maybe now is a good time to be re-engaging with a uh, landlord, you know, or, or, I mean, quite frankly, is it an okay time to consider like what are options as far as selling your practice? Any of those things, I know that was last one was self-serving, but like any of those things and many more, if you're just strategically thinking about stuff, you're going to be coming out a uh, big time on the back end. Um, in terms of good news, um, this is kind of the way that I was ending my podcast or my uh, uh, webinar the other day, which is, uh, this is a much different deal than 2008, 2009, right? So every single bank, every single private equity that I'm on their webinars or on their investor phone calls with, um, the market is liquid, right? And so it is, it is a much different thing. Um, I remember 2008, 2009, I had such a hard time closing deals, right? And um, that's not the case now, right? There are, there's plenty of funds and funding mechanisms out there that did not exist in 2008, 2009. And um, I think that overall, uh, we don't know how long this is going to last in total. And so that can change, right? So time is the biggest indicator of success in these things. But um, 
assuming kind of a median amount of time, a couple of months, uh, something like that, before we kind of start on the recovery, um, that there's a lot of funding mechanisms that can be used, right? So whether you're using debt, whether you're using equity, whether you're using any of those different types of funding mechanisms for growth, um, if you're zigging while other people are zagging, now is the time for like an abundance mindset yep. rather than much more of a conservation mindset in my and, mind. And, and a lot of those other vehicles that are not getting talked about are applicable for expansion people and for buying equipment. Yep. You need to look at that. If, if, if you want to come out of this stronger, you need to strengthen your physical plant. You know, do you have, aside from the SBA, um, disaster relief bridge loan, which I, I know can be used for some things like that. What other specific places would you give them the, uh, the clue to look? Yeah. So uh, here's the thing is like, uh, I don't have, I don't have a financial interest here. Um, I, I consider myself very bank agnostic. Um, I don't take referral fees or anything like that from anyone. Um, but uh, I was just on a webinar with Lendever and um, not only are they closing on practice loans during this time, which is unbelievable, um, but they're being really, really, really thoughtful on the types of, of loans that they're putting out there and how to allow people to have that curve coming out of it look more like a V than a U, right? And how much more of that is like, there's economic factors and all that kind of stuff, but they are, they're being, they're being thoughtful about it. And um, so credit where credit is due. There's other financial institutions out there that are doing similar things. I just want to give them credit. Uh, I came out of that and two of my other brokers were on it as well. We actually all got on a phone call afterwards and we're like, wow, that was that's the best one we've been on, you know? So um, anyway, I think that uh, using those different types of funding mechanisms, whether it is going to be a, uh, just kind of a, a normal, uh, uh, a normal loan, uh, whether it's going to be an SBA, whether it's going to be an SBA EIDL, it, whatever funding mechanisms you use, now is not a bad time to be thinking about levering as well. Right. Um, obviously do it smart, right? And um, it's got to be the right thing at the right time. Uh, or kind of attracting that equity partner, right? So either way could be uh, very, very interesting in this time. All right, fantastic. Well, guys, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Deer Doc Podcast. And uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to welcome you to go ahead and put your questions down below, or send them to me as a DM uh, for a Deer Doc letter, and we'll see if we can convince Ryan to come back on at some point in the future and talk a little bit more about this. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your day with us. Um, you and I were, ta were playing tag team all day long. One of us or the other one of us was always running late. So my apologies for that myself. And um, I really enjoyed interviewing you. So thanks yeah. a lot. And, uh, so I think uh, what I'm going to do next time, rather than having this background, is I'm just going to have like, my name is Kyle right here. Um, no, no, so I, I, like, I like not Patrick. Not Patrick. Not Patrick. I like that too. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't, you can't get part on SpongeBob anymore. Right. right <laughs> exactly. You guys have a fantastic, uh, have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc podcast on all major platforms.